Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly. Yes, it's weekly again. We are uh, uh, we're sitting down today for episode 167, recorded on February 8th of 2023. And uh, this episode features myself, Don Kamarechka, as your host, with my good friend, Alan Attridge, hailing from Germany. Two Canadians uh, living abroad as expats for today's conversation. And I haven't talked to you, Alan, in a very long time. So how are you, man? I'm doing great. I had to think about it for a sec. I, how, how great do I want to sound? Uh, doing everything, you know, the same. Yeah, I, so you're, you're right. We haven't talked in a lot, couple of years, maybe. Has it been at least a year? At least a year. Maybe two? I think it has been, yeah. Uh, no, just one. But, uh, okay. you know, it, it's like I sit down and I I'm, we're going to have this chat. And we were uh, chatting off the record beforehand. It's like, yeah, this is this is the same Alan Attridge that... Uh, that I know and and like, uh, he hasn't changed, and so hopefully life continues to to keep on keeping on. It does. What, what, what's what's odd to me is that I don't know about you, but like time no longer exists uh, to me. <laughs> like I, I can't. I used to be able to place everything like. You know, oh, this happened then, or you asked me about like some sort of a movie in you know older movie. I know what year it was made, and, and because it was all part of the, the sort of the fabric, the zeitgeist of everything. Uh, I find the last, I guess, three years now that that's all kind of blended together. Time is a flat circle, right? Like it's all. <laughs> And just look at it all. It's like, yeah, it all happened at once. And some of it maybe never happened. Maybe I'm hallucinating that was this a thing or. Uh, <laughs> so this episode is kind of a, a look back on the past year. I found some stories that I thought would be interesting. Some recent, some a little bit older. Uh, and uh, we're going to kind of just take a look and see what the the year 2022 and, and the first part of 2023 has had to offer. And I'm sure we'll touch on more stories as time goes on. Um what did, did anything really stand out for you as uh, as this year passed by in the photography space or life in general? Uh, no. <laughs> what I mean, we we talked about the war in Ukraine in the last week right. episode, so we're we're going to leave that there. Uh, I figured. But, I figured you wouldn't want to get into that. Yeah. The um, yeah. I haven't had a chance to listen to that episode yet. I should should have done my homework. Uh, and figure out where you're at. No, but in the, in the world of photography and tech and that, not particularly, nothing. I find myself kind of shying away from a, a lot of that. Uh, well, you're the guy that used a 5D for how many years? Uh, I still have a Mark III. Oh, uh, the 5D Classic actually went to the dump uh, a week ago. I threw, I oh, finally okay. got rid of it. It stopped working for the most part. It would work. It would have flickers of life in it, but I, I realized I couldn't depend on it and I finally had to let go. So my condolences. It is um. gone. Yeah. It's, that's life. <laughs> that's life. So I, I now own a, uh, I still have my 5D Mark III, which I still use, but I, uh, I'll keep, the spoiler alert, I'll keep, I'll keep what I bought for the end of the end of the episode. All right. Well, uh, stay tuned for that, folks. Yeah. Let's get into the stories, because the first one has been evolving and has many facets on it. Um, I, I just picked this one because it was uh, recently in the DP Review stream. Google's Imagine AI produces photorealistic images from natural text with frightening fidelity. And it's not just this thing from Google. It's, uh, you know, it started with Dolly and then Stable Diffusion. And there's, there's a ton of them, right? If you uh, plug something into Mid Journey, 
uh, AI uh, with a detailed description, you'll get something that looks pretty cool and mostly realistic off the other side of it. So we're going to talk about this AI imagery stuff. Um, and uh, it for me, I, I thought it was really interesting to see Google throwing their hat into this ring because there's a lot of controversy, uh, uh, controversy rather, about whether or not this is uh, legal uh, based on, you know, a lot of the farming of copyrighted material on the internet, which has been uh, admitted to by the owner and the creator of Midjourney AI. And in fact, that particular tool, you can even give it specific prompts that generate a compressed version, uh, I mean, verbatim minus the compression uh, of a photograph of somebody for which is copyrighted and shouldn't be in that system. Like they're storing the images as part of the software as well. And it wasn't just used as some sort of neural net training thing. So this is a very unusual space for imagery. I don't want to necessarily call it photography. Photography is the source, but it's not the output. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I, the first image is um, that they gave they gave this uh, Google program the prompt of a blue jay standing on a large basket of rainbow macarons, uh, and it outputted exactly that as an image. And it's not perfect. The blue jay is kind of missing a leg. Uh, oh yeah. But, but by and large, uh, it's it's pretty realistic to what that prompt was. Uh, and this is, this is changing things quite a bit. You know, uh, if you need to get a, an image for a book cover uh, or album art or any of these things that don't need to necessarily be tied to reality, are you going to hire a photographer or an illustrator to do that? Or are these tools the better option? And can you legally do that if there's uh, issues with who owns the copyright to it? I'm assuming that this is basically a combination of like call it 10,000 images that exist on the internet. Uh, more like in, in the millions, but probably yes. in the millions. Uh, I was, I was yeah. going to go, I wanted to go low, but, but so basically what it's doing is, is, is it's, it's calling all it knows about these particular keywords that you feed it and then takes a little piece of it and reconstructs it in its own image. So you are, yes, you but are I mean, you could say, violating. you know, generate an image in a particular artist's style and right. it can, it can take a look at a, a whole uh, thematic series of art from a particular artist and then modify its output to match that artistic styling as well. So it, there, there's multiple layers of this onion. Right. So we're talking about the technical because the technical is very impressive. Yes. Um, and, and there's, I believe, class action lawsuits that have been started as, as a result of, uh, you know, copyright infringement based on this. Uh, no, no, I'm not saying from Google. I'm saying that's from uh, MidJourney and potentially others. But, uh, you know, this type of content is going to become more and more regular. It's going to be showing up in our streams, whether we realize it or not, as the algorithms mm -hmm. continue to improve and uh, the distinction between... Uh, reality versus fabricated reality are going to blur. A lot of these algorithms, they don't handle uh, hands and and you know fingers and toes and things like that uh, very well right now. And it's quite painfully obvious when you see them try to render it. Uh, teeth are another big problem, but that's that's just something that's going to improve, right? It's just sure. going to get better from here. Even if they were to stop this technology uh, legally. 
in countries that abide by copyright, who's to say that some upstart tech company in Syria uh, is is not going to create an AI engine and uh, and copyright be damned because nobody's going to stop them. So this is here to stay. And what does that mean for the photographic space moving forward? So to me, when I first saw this, I thought this looks like a really good version of the police sketch artist, where, where you <laughs> yes, describe something I, to them. Oh, you, you've just you you hit the nail on a particular head right now. Police sketch artists are out of a job. This software will replace them in their entirety if you just right. give a detailed written description of a uh, of a perp. Then you're going to get uh, something far better than any sketcher could come up with in in a fraction of a second or however long these things take to generate. But so there, there's a, a a career path that has just evaporated. Sure. Hopefully, most of those people were near retirement. I couldn't imagine a 20 year old that went through uh, a whole bunch of schooling and was just hired by a police department. They're they're probably going to lose their job very soon. I would assume so, but I mean, like it's, it, it potentially would have. Um, uh, huge benefits in in not just that but also let's say like missing children and 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 things like that i could see that being put to good use um i did read it you know in the in the article it talked about you know they want to put potential safeguards in place which i good luck to you yeah Um, there's always going to be some way around it that's a screen door on a submarine so good luck um the other main issue that they they highlighted in this article, which I found a, a little comical, is that one of the main issues was, um, well, it, it still falls prey to gender stereotypes and uh, like gender roles and, and slight, slight racism. Well, that's because it's been fed with organic content from a society that also contains racism. Sure. It also contains not racism. So I mean, there's a lot, a lot contained right. in that society. But, but I, my, 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 I understand like that's that's going to end up happening, and 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 I suppose and I'm not defending either either side of that. Uh, but I, I, my, my initial thought was that's not our biggest problem here. I mean, What's imagine. The biggest problem? Well, we're talking it, it, when, with with the, the entire AI with all of it. I imagine. Yeah, sure. You, you might get caught for, for crimes uh, easier now with the, the No More Police sketch artist, but you also have a, a wonderful uh, alibi. No, that video is okay. not me. That wasn't me. I didn't rob the bank. That's, that's clearly AI. That's an AI video <laughs> of me robbing the bank. Well, you know, and, and so there's the deep fake element of this as well. I saw, was it um, uh, Jimmy Kimmel did an interview with himself uh, uh interviewing himself from his first episode of his show. Okay. And, and he was kind of doing this sort of, uh, you know, time warp time travel conversation and him having a conversation looked just like he was in his first episode talking to himself from now 2023. And, uh, I couldn't spot any inconsistencies with it. It, it was pretty cool, but it's also very scary to say that, all right, if, if he can do that, then what of any celebrity, politician, what have you, uh, coming out with a video with some extremist statement or mm-hmm. uh, defamatory statement or incriminating whatever, you know, something that's less than good, but it's not real. 
uh, it's just this sure. technology that is skewing reality. And, you know, as they say, uh, what was the phrase, you know, gossip will spread around the world before the truth ever gets out the door or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think we're going to have to prepare for a, a lot of skeptical analysis of almost any statement we see, unless it's not coming directly from the proper source. We are not prepared for that right now. No, no, we're not. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, so the other thing I thought about was, was you know, I, I related this to a lot of the um, the, the technology in, in the computer-generated images, the CGI in movies in particular, because yeah. I, I showed my kids who are 9 and 11, uh, they wanted to see, well, my son wanted to see Jurassic Park. My daughter wanted to see the first 20 minutes and then ran off crying. But the um, my son was thrilled by it. And this was 1992. Three, if I remember correctly, the first one, and it looked looked fantastic. Obviously, it looked fake. I've never seen. Maybe it didn't. I've never seen real dinosaurs, so maybe it looked real. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, the animatronics of that era were fantastic, and a lot of effort was a lot of budget was spent on that. Sure, sure. Um, and but but the, the computer uh, graphic uh, graphics as well was just uh, was outstanding. Um, and and at the time, it was amazing. Like, like the first time everybody saw that, I was like, oh my couldn't believe I saw that. Now it's so commonplace that I don't know that anybody cares. And what was, we'll call it the most entertaining movie. I don't know if it's the best movie of the year, but the most entertaining, one of the biggest money makers of all time. Did you see the latest Top Gun? I have not. Um, but in my defense, it's because I wanted to go back and watch the first Top Gun. Right. For a visual comparison to the new one. And I have been too lazy and not motivated to go and watch the first one because of how horrible it's going to be in comparison. So I'm, I've caught myself in a loop of, uh, okay. of apathy and uh, I don't know, um, just uh, I'll get to it when I get to it. It's not going to get any better or worse if I watch it later. It might not. No, the, but what, what I was struck by and, and what, I mean, according to, to the, the producers of the movie, it, of the, the uh, Maverick, the latest one, the bulk of the movie is practical cinematography, not computer generated, which when you consider it, when you look at it, it is amazing. But I think that's what resonated with, with the audience was that this was, quote unquote, real, really happening. And I think that makes a big difference. I don't imagine oh, yeah. the, the AI is going to take off in the way that people think it might. Well, a lot of my work... Um, is documentary in a sense. You know, it, it's magical because it's real. And so uh, the contracts that I get for documentary film work, they're not going to go away. I mean, that's always still going to be a part of the, uh, the equation. You can't replace that with AI-generated stuff uh, ethically and get away with it. And my audience doesn't want uh, AI-generated things that look real but aren't. They want real things that look like they can't possibly be real, but they are. Right. And, uh, and so there's value in that. But people are always going to try and uh, and lie about this. As I got a follow up to this story sent to my uh, uh, inbox this morning by my good friend Steve Brazel um, from the Sun, stunning sunset photograph in air quotes um, wins contest um, after bowling over the judges. But terrifying, also in air quotes, twist leads to scandal, and the terrifying <laughs> twist. So terrifying. I didn't uh, want to read it, it. I was nervous. No, it was, uh, it, it's an AI image. Uh, yeah. And 
uh, when the person was going to be given, I think it was like a hundred dollar uh, voucher as a prize. Uh, they kind of fessed up and they said, "I don't want the money. This is not real." And and so, but th- then you've got this AI imagery that it's going to masquerade as real, and us as photographers, I guess we have to defend the reality of our work. Um, a contest that I entered recently, the close-up photographer of the year competition. Uh, I think they're in their fourth or their fifth year. And I've entered every year. And some of my images always to some degree make the short list. And this year, one of them, I, d- I didn't win like a first place position, but it got some higher level of recognition. And they asked me for the raw file. And it was a focus stacked image. So I just sent them one of them uh, to prove it. It was only two or three images that were combined. Uh, and they said, yeah, okay, good enough. That you know, Proof that uh, you didn't mm-hmm. plug some phrase into an AI image generator to create uh, a dandelion seed covered in water droplets refracting the image of a sunflower in the background because an AI software could possibly create something like that. From uh, your images. That- that well, because if you fed my images into that, then yeah, yeah, you know, you've got your source material there. To uh, and then of course I'm going to have to have a, a talk with a lawyer if if I find uh, concrete evidence that my images those were are used my to pixels these models. Well, and so I, I saw somebody at one point uh, plug in, um, you know, young Afghan girl with green eyes looking at the camera mm-hmm. in an alleyway, and the famous uh, photo. And wouldn't you imagine that almost every one of them looked exactly like Steve McCurry's uh, Afghan girl photo? I mean, some slight differences, but you could tell without a doubt that they were fed that image multiple times uh, and it was entirely the basis for what they constructed. So, you know, uh, I don't know what Steve's going to do about that, but uh, who knows? Maybe nothing. Uh, I don't know who technically owns the copyright to that, if it's National Geographic or if it is uh, him at at this stage in the game. But anyhow, you can tell that they've been fed with just content that is available on the internet. And it is starting the, uh, the, the, the masquerade as real work. And that will continue. And uh, we got to be skeptical, folks. We got to you know, keep that um, a certain level of cynicism to just about anything you see out there. I guess the the lesson actually does come from uh, Jurassic Park. It's just because we can doesn't mean we should. (laughs) Well said. Life Um, finds a way. Life finds a way. And, uh, you know, uh, that's actually kind of an interesting segue to the next story, which because we've been off the air for a while, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope. Was, was launched in, I think it was December of 2021. So we may have talked about the successful launch of it, but the images only came out months later uh, in the middle of 2022. The first ones I think were in July, July 12th. And uh, NASA has a nice page that has published uh, that first series of images. One of them is, is more a spectral uh, sort of uh, analysis of a, an exoplanet uh, atmospheric composition, but still it's fun data. And these images, I mean, I've always loved the stuff that the Hubble Space Telescope was able to create and a lot of terrestrial stuff too. I just find it fascinating. But especially the very last one uh, on on this page, the uh, SMACS 0723, the deep view into the world, into the universe, um, where pretty much every single dot that you see, even the tiniest, faintest ones are complete galaxies. 
And you can see gravitational lensing from a black hole that blurs some of these things and messes with space and time. And I just, the more I look at this image, the more I just get lost in the vastness of everything. And uh, if you have the, uh, the, uh, the star point effect happening on one of these light points, that's a star. That's a, a legitimate star. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, then that's a galaxy. Uh, what do you think about what mankind has been able to do with technology? Yes, we can accomplish a lot of evil in this world, but uh, there is some definite highlights to our ingenuity and, uh, and desire to explore. Uh, my neighbor had this painted on his side of his van in 1978. <laughs> okay, so you know it could have been visualized that way by somebody in an altered state of mind. Um, Possibly. But to no, know I, that I, that altered state of mind is actually, you know, close enough to real. Well, I'm assuming he's a time traveler. That's what uh, I, now ah, that I'm looking I, back I on this connection. No, uh, there was no vans in my in my neighborhood. No, this is this is amazing. Uh, I, 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 I the first image was the one that really caught my eye. Even though I guess the last one is is the Carina Nebula. Yeah, impressive. I mean, I mean all of it. But I mean, I've seen seen images like the Carina Nebula that we see here from uh, Hubble. I mean, obviously not to the same finesse and degree. Uh, it was the it was the last one in the mm-hmm. set that I don't think like it was the proving ground for for this new telescope to be okay, able to. Okay, so you're bored this of this now? Well, no. I mean, you know, especially because that data is not just imagery data. It's it's an infrared image where they can calculate uh, the the redshift and mm-hmm. understand you know by pixel by pixel how old that is uh, based on you know uh, the distance from the Big Bang. And we can get within, I think it's like a couple of million years of the Big Bang uh, with this data set that we're already, uh, you know, able to generate. And that's, that's just now at the beginning of the lifetime of this space telescope. So where is the, the James Webb uh, Space Telescope uh, physically? How far out are we talking uh, that's a good question. It's at the second Lagrange point, but I don't know how far away that is uh, from the Earth at any given time. Um, but it's it's not in Earth orbit like the the Hubble is. Okay, but it hasn't gone past Mars yet. No, I don't think that. It, I have no it, idea. I've I've read nothing about this. It, it, um, it's as far as I understand it, it's orbiting the Sun close to the Earth, but uh, I don't understand what Lagrange points actually are. I, right. I probably should have studied that because um, I now sound stupid on my own podcast, but that's okay. So the, but the general idea is that like you, you, it wants to get away far enough away from Earth to avoid any quote unquote pollution, I suppose. Uh, well, I mean, there, there's that. There's uh, I don't know if it's subject to electromagnetic interference from the Earth's magnetic uh, you know influences and, and what have you, or maybe it's just because there's so much space debris around Earth orbit mm-hmm. now. Um, I really don't know. I could I could ask a NASA engineer to figure out why they put it where they did, and they've got a damn good answer. I'm certain of it. Yeah, I think you're wasting every, everybody's time with me on the show right now because uh, <laughs> you should have had a NASA guy. Yeah, but hey, you know, it, it's cool space images is all I'm saying that, yeah. uh, you know, the, I, I'm glad that the telescope, there wasn't a single problem with its deployment, its calibration, and its initial operations. And we're continuing to get some really fun, groundbreaking imagery that the scientists are better to, able to understand the universe because of it. So while like in the previous episode, we talk about photography as a literal weapon of war. Um, it can be uh, pushing the boundaries of science and understanding of the universe. So 
that's that. I don't know how much more we can talk about it. You've probably seen these images already. If not, check out the show notes at photogeekweekly.com and uh, and we'll be able to have a, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, just a, a gaze into the stellar everything. Uh, and, and if you like actually go onto the NASA website, you can download the full resolution files. Uh, really? And I've done that. And it's just, uh, it's, I don't know, breathtaking. I was staring at it for a good hour the other day when I was putting the show notes together, even though I had already enjoyed it previously. So I'm going to request a, a raw file from them just for proof. <laughs> just prove it. Show us the raw data. Well, it's it's public domain data, so I don't know if they actually uh, have a, like allowed the public to access the the raw ones and zeros off the satellite. But I do know that they've done this in the past uh, because a lot of the stuff from Hubble, for example, is uh, multiple filters uh, of different wavelengths that are all put together to create a colored image uh, that could include data from the Hubble, data from the Chandra um, uh, X ray Observatory. Uh, and and other components that create the final piece. And uh, so that data, the components have historically been available. So there we have it. Hey, at the uh, the intermission here in the middle, I want to mm-hmm. ask you again, Alan, before we get into uh, to the next story. Uh, in the past year, have you have you picked up any new hobbies? Uh, I think you were getting into woodworking quite uh, quite heavily, right? I was going to promote it. Are we, are we we're off the air now, right? No, no, we're we're on the air. We're, we okay, are, okay. <laughs> this, this, uh, this is yeah. the intermission. This is between the stories. Let's chat a bit more. The uh, I did. I, I started. I a couple years ago. I started. I decided I wanted to get more into woodworking, and so I built a whole shop in my in my basement. And then the natural progression is you have to legally create your own woodworking YouTube channel. So I did. Uh, yeah, if so you didn't, I, I mean, you you hefty fines. They come and take your table saw away, and uh, so I didn't. I didn't, didn't want to risk that. Uh, no, I actually I, I I learned so much. Like everything I've learned about how to build furniture or anything in my house um, uh, was was basically on YouTube. I'm watching different uh, YouTube channels of experts talk, showing us how to uh, uh, how how you can build things, which I've always appreciated. That's what you know. My podcast has always been about about showing how to use the basics of your camera. Um, and so I thought, well, what's my angle? I, I, well, how about all these shows feature guys who know what they're talking about? What if I show you? I don't know what I'm talking about. Watch me make mistakes. That's that's what the channel is. Uh, and everybody, and hopefully, everybody loves to watch somebody else fail. Yeah. I, well, it's nothing like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm. It, it's 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 when I do make mistakes, they are typically minor and and correctable, and I learn from them. So. Um, if you'd like to learn from my mistakes, and so I've been building uh, all kinds of things. I'm, I'm going to remodel my entire house. I started in the basement because all the mistakes I make, I would like them to be there. Um, right. And so I built a, a brand new, like a whole cabinet and uh, and like laundry, like a laundry room with a. I don't know how do you even describe it. Built a laundry room with a sink and learned, figured out how to put a sink in. And then built a, a mud room with a with a, like an oak bench with the the, the hall tree that they have all these names on the internet for these things. Um, so I built all that. Currently building, uh, putting recessed lighting into my uh, the rec room in the basement. See, uh, we're, we're just hiring somebody to do those things, right? Um, and uh, and in fact, the, the lighting in this house is so horribly wired 
that I actually put a, uh, a smoke detector in the attic uh, because uh, it is just all uh, loosely uh, spun together, just t- twisted wires to connect them wrapped with like one round of black electrical tape. And, okay, uh, you're going to want to invest in some of the... I, I use the little Wagos, not a sponsor. Um, these are game-changing clips uh, like uh, for wiring. That I, I love these things. They're not tremendously expensive. They're more expensive than tape. Are these like uh, the murettes, the little cones that you spin on the end? Nope, even better than that. They're, 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 I'll have to send you a photo uh, with the little clip-in things. But it, I found myself, because one of the things... Um, you know, in in this whole uh, energy crisis we find ourselves in 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 Europe, one of the the positives, if I can, you know, be a bright light here for a sec, is I finally got around to re uh, to actually insulating my attic. It was one of the pro- pro- projects right. um, to do my part and hopefully save some money. Ultimately, you're not going to save money for a couple of years when you factor all the costs in. But I did it myself, insulated it, filled it in, rewired it for lights, and came across these. So I wanted to run multiple lights in different directions, use the little waggle clips. So this is boring everybody, uh, <laughs> but it will it, it will possibly save you a lot of time. You can do it yourself. Please shut the power off. Don't uh, don't be messing around with live wires. Um, yep. But see, in, in my house, why, why I bring it up is that in, in the basement, we have, in the whole house, we have cement ceilings. So you can't just pop uh, like an LED, like a, like a pot light in there. So I had to basically build fake beams in the room to then enclose all the wiring and the lights themselves. So that's what I'm just right. finishing up. I just, that's why I have dust in my hair. I was just downstairs <laughs> sanding, getting ready to paint those. But- the moment you've all been waiting for, if you're still listening, is that I do have a channel. I started it off, and then I got sidetracked, I admit. So a bunch of people signed up, and then it just disappeared. It's going to go again. If you I'll put a link find in the out, show notes for people. Yeah. Well, I'm a, a Canadian guy living in Germany. The Canadian word for lumberjack, or sorry, the, the German word for lumberjack, a very Canadian icon, is Holzfeller. So it's holzfellerwoodworking.com. You can go to find that. All right. And uh, if you can't spell uh, Hotzfeller, then we will have the link in the show notes. Please do. And I probably so. pronounced I, it terribly. But. You did fine. <laughs> you did just fine. In fact, I grabbed multiple uh, uh, web uh, domain names just to account for people misspelling. Ah, very smart. Yeah. Very smart. I I've mean, since been told it's a terrible name, so we'll see. Well, um, I, I disagree. I think it'll have character. <laughs> okay. But... Um, and for myself, I mean, what can I tell you? Um, we had uh, we rescued a cat uh, that showed up at our doorstep last winter, and uh, rescued a cat from get what? It, uh, it just showed up starving. Uh, oh, there's okay. stray cats all over the place here, and uh, it was a juvenile uh, female. And so, uh, before we could get her fixed, uh, she got pregnant. So now oh, we boy. have five cats, and uh, <laughs> and uh, the. The female, uh, the uh, two of the, the kittens, I mean, they're, they're grown now, uh, have been fixed. So it's going to stay at five, but they're mostly outdoor cats. Uh, uh-huh. And I'm, I'm kind of allergic to cats. So uh, <laughs> if, if on this podcast I sound a bit sniffly uh, slightly all the time, then yeah, that, that, there's your reason why. But, and you're the I cat guy in, now. Uh, I'm the cat guy, but I also have in a formicarium uh, sitting here next to my desk is a venomous Australian queen ant. 
because why not start a colony uh, of very cool looking ants as a mm -hmm. photographic subject? And so um, I don't know where she is at the moment. She was foraging around earlier, but uh, look up greenhead ants or greenheaded ants. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, uh, and they, uh, they're iridescent green, possibly slightly purple, uh, could make an absolutely beautiful photographic subject, especially when you can uh, kind of build something into the enclosure and uh, the little uh, sort of terrarium thing that it's in has little uh, holes on the bottom that you can connect tubing to multiple enclosures. But I could also fit the Liowa probe lens right inside there and uh and do some pretty cool macro video stuff and uh i've got a feeling that some of my cinema work is going to involve these ants in the coming year or two so yes how venomous not very i mean okay uh it is from australia where anything can kill you but right uh it is is like the most common backyard ant so probably less than a bee sting um it's technically venom but it's not gonna uh, I, I mean, if you're allergic to bee stings, don't get stung by these. You might go into anaphylactic shock, but uh, I, I don't think it would be that painful from what I've heard. Okay. Well, you're going to find out. I'm, I'm, I'm going to find out. So that, that is a new acquisition on my part. Anyhow, let's get back to the uh, photography stuff. The next story that I've dug up, it is relatively recent. Um, from earlier this year, January 4th, DP Review published an initial review of the Panasonic Lumix S5 II. And for me, this was, uh, game changer is such a cliche word, but one of the biggest issues with the Lumix cameras that everybody, uh, you know, gave a thumbs down to was their depth uh, from uh, defocus, uh, autofocus system, the, the DFD and yeah, I, I guess they're right because it didn't really perform as well as the phase detect autofocus from just about everybody else. And while it could benefit from the uh, advantages of AI and, and machine learning as time goes on, so too could phase detect autofocus and it was already there. So now the first Lumix camera has phase detect autofocus and everybody is singing this camera's praises. Um, I've heard uh, some uh, statements that, you know, they just can't, Wrap, uh, ramp up production enough and there's going to be shortages mm -hmm. of this particular model and everybody seems pretty happy about it i'm i'm hoping that i can get uh, jordan drake on the next episode and uh talk finally about get a somebody. good guest uh he'd be a great guest to talk about the video on a camera like this because panasonic has, has always been uh well known for their video and combine that with the uh that the new phase detection autofocus but let's not make this just about panasonic here because the last year has seen some pretty remarkable cameras from everybody, from Canon right. and Nikon and Sony and Panasonic and, uh, well, uh, OM Systems, I think they're called now. Um, what stands out for you in terms of new gear? Uh, is anything pushing limits that is, is needed today? Or is it all just, okay, one step forward to grab more money and you've been a creative all along and you can make do with what you've got? Uh, all of that is true, but what people ask me, you know, who, who hey, I want to buy a new camera. What's a good camera? And my answer is literally all of them. <laughs> yeah. Like you, you cannot, I don't see how you can, you can lose at this point. They are so good. Uh, that's why I wanted to ask you specifically, like, what is it about the, 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 the Panasonic? I mean, the Panasonic did, 
they they were a game changer in video way back in like 2002 or I forget when it came out. I, I forget the name of the the camera that came out. They had the GH1 a, was probably their really big hit. But. Oh, I'm talking way back before then. Before then, there was the something 100, the the AVX 100, whatever it was called. I forget. Someone re- will remember. Well, of course, um, Panasonic has their uh, their broadcast side of cameras as well. Yes, uh, and and so that it might be from that part of the company rather. Oh, than not even that. We're talking about a four thousand dollar, five thousand dollar handheld handycam, like a prosumer. It was that was the, the right, category right. prosumer, and all it did was. Because uh, in, in Europe, they shoot 25, uh, t- television is 25 frames a second. Uh, North America is 30, 29.97, but 30 frames a second. <laughs> film is 24 frames a second. And when they shoot it, they shoot film and put it on TV, like a show like Friends. They could shoot it at 30 frames a second and just transfer it, but they don't, or they didn't. They shot it in 24. And so it had that certain look to it, that 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 sort of, um, I, I can't even just, just that film yeah, besides the actual film part of it, the actual film to video look had a certain look that Panasonic duplicated. They basically tricked out their cameras to shoot 30 frames a second, but make it look like it was 24 to 30 converted. It was a weird thing, and it looked awesome. It wasn't wasn't high definition. It was a standard definition thing. So Panasonic goes, does go way back into, into imaging. Well before then, I'm just picking a, a random uh, signpost. Uh, the technology, I, I thought for a long time too, when, when, when mirrorless was becoming big, I thought like, why would I need that? Like, I don't, I don't need that. Well, yeah, I do. Like it is, it is amazing. I'm going to spoil my pick of the week. Now it's an R6 because I bought one. I bought an, uh, the, the first, the first, uh, R6. Uh, so like yeah, they got in, the the Mark II now, and yeah. it's like four megapixels more with the new version. And I'm sure there's extra polish and mm. uh, and charm to it. But sure. I, I'm not going to say that that's required in order to get a good experience. No, what I noticed, well, though the the autofocus, the image stabilization, the those things were. I wrote down game changer. I know how cliche it is, and you even said it was cliche. It like, <laughs> and this is a couple years back. This is in the in the. This is not in the last year. So this has been going on for a little a little while. This technology is massive. Uh, I was thrilled with my my five D Mark II when they, we could start making movies with that way back in two thousand and ten. I thought like this this is right. it. Like what else do we need? If you'd handed that camera to a film school Allen in nineteen ninety eight, my mind would have been blown of what that was. Uh, I would have got the bends just using that camera. So. That was fantastic enough. The new ones are that much better. So what is it about the Panasonic in particular that is groundbreaking? Well, it's the fact that they have decided to do the phase detection autofocus, which was the one thing that set them behind the pack. And now okay. that they've added that in, then it uh, it kind of sets them as a front runner with a non-flagship product that is going to uh, you know have a huge amount of sales and eat into the market. Uh, from people that would have otherwise been shooting with similar priced cameras from Sony, Canon, and Nikon, especially if you're still making the jump into mirrorless and you're uh, relatively system agnostic. Uh, right. You know, it doesn't really matter which way you go at that particular point. Uh, you're just going to, you know, get whatever suits your needs, regardless of what the brand happens to be. So, that's, and th- there is yeah. the uh, the uh, S52X, which has some extra video features. If that's your game, uh, and and that might be useful for, I, I mean, for somebody like me, I've got the S1H, 
and the S1R and the S1. So I'm firmly in the Panasonic camp here. The S1, I had converted to full spectrum photography, do a lot of weird sciencey stuff with that. The S1H, I shoot documentary film stuff with, and it gives great output. Uh, and, and I shoot a lot of raw video to uh, Anatomos Ninja V because that has to match a lot of the... Um, uh, the footage from other cameras when I'm doing a documentary because they all come in from different sources and you've got to color mm-hmm. grade stuff to match it all together. So the raw video is is, is helpful for that. Uh, and so if, if the S5 uh, was available uh, when I bought the S1H, I might have considered the S5 instead. The S5 II, I think is, uh, in my opinion, at, at least if, you, if you're looking for the video, the X version that would have, uh, it would be running circles around the S1H. So it's, and it's no longer a flagship product. So then what's going to come next? Well, obviously they've set the bar so that every other camera, uh, one can assume, I mean, I have no knowledge of this, but I think it's a safe bet that if anything else in the S1 series comes out and the S1R is getting pretty long in the tooth, it's been three, four years, maybe longer than that, uh, since it uh, hit the market. I was playing with pre-production models before they uh, were generally available at the time because Panasonic sponsored me in Canada, which now they don't sponsor me because I'm not in Canada. But I see. Uh, hey, any uh, Panasonic Europe uh, people listening to this podcast, uh, get in touch. Like <laughs> play, play around with whatever is not yet unveiled. But I suspect what whatever that is going to be, is probably going to have phase detection autofocus on new sensors. I know they were working on organic sensor technology as well that has taken a while to mature. And so this, especially with the sales going up, uh, I think it's a it's a big move. It's it's a it's a pivoting point for Panasonic, and that's why I think it's uh, it's the big deal that it is. Ironically, the product photo I'm looking at here of the S5 uh, is AI generated. <laughs> Shut up! It is not. Uh, but Hey, you know, product photography that could, I mean, if you want to demo a product, like, uh, you know, if the AI system is fed with a bunch of already existing images of a particular camera or any product for that matter, mm-hmm. you could say, um, uh, th- this camera, this coat, this hair clip, whatever it is, uh, being worn by insert name of celebrity here. And you could probably get a relatively decent output on that. And that, I guess, will change the whole realm of product photography as well. Wow. Or just give, just give Don a new Panasonic. That's what, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll uh, that's, take it. Yeah. That's what I'm asking for. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, I like to, to end the, uh, these episodes with something a little bit, odd, strange, funny sometimes, or something a bit different than the regular tech talk or uh, existential uh, conversations about photography itself. So here's one I found from Petapixel uh, from last month. Wedding photographer sued after making, quote, unreasonable demands. Um, Uh All right, well, I'm going to read you the, the first two sentences of this story. A wedding photographer is being sued by a dad who accuses the shooter of making unreasonable demands just before his daughter's ceremony. The New Jersey-based father of the bride said he is out of pocket $76,000, I'm assuming that's U.S., and was forced to find a photographer at the last minute for his daughter's lavish wedding. So 
$76,000 paid to a photographer. And I'm assuming that this is going to be a team of people and not just an individual at that point. Um, and the wedding was to take place in Bodrum, Turkey. And just a uh, brief aside, I mean, uh, my uh, thoughts go to everybody in, in Turkey and Syria right now after the earthquakes uh, in the last couple of days. I know the world is coming to their aid, uh, but it's still a, a tense scenario. Uh, Bodrum is, uh, it was nowhere near the, uh, the, the quakes, but still, um, thoughts go to you guys because, you know, you're right next door to us. And uh, don't mean to be a downer, but, you know, the world can, can get you there sometimes. Okay. Um, so what is the, a re- what would what would classify as a reasonable demand from your wedding photographer? So the only thing that they outline in this story mm-hmm. um, was that the photographer uh, and his team were scheduled to stay at the Doubletree by Hilton instead of the luxury five-star Mandarin hotel where the wedding took place. Yeah. So one could assume that the photographer, I mean even just purely for logistics reasons, not to be greedy, you'd probably yeah. want to be in the same hotel as the wedding is happening to get there super early, stay super late, have your uh, massive trunks of gear easily accessible in a room for when you don't need them at that particular time. And then you can roll right. out all the heavy lighting without having to truck it across from another hotel. Yes. I, that, that, I think that would be a very reasonable request to stay in the same hotel. Um, but that is the only thing that is outlined as a request. No other requests have been identified in this story. Well, there was one so, where he, the photographer demanded that he would decide who was shooting what and when, though. Oh, so. Well, of course, but you're, you're choreographing a very yeah. complex shoot. Well, he uh, demanded, so though. He dem- it said demand. Well, okay. Have, have you ever shot a wedding, Alan? Yes, I'm pretty demanding. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you have to be because it's a creative vision and you have to be at least somewhat in control of that. Well, here's the thing is I don't know who to be mad at in this in this uh, article because uh, first of all, like the, the father of the bride spending $76,000 on a photographer, that seems – Odd. It's like it's like somebody complaining. Oh, my back is killing me. It's probably because my wallet is so jammed full of hundred dollar bills that it's throwing my back out. Like you don't well, feel bad for so, that but, guy. But again, so uh, there's no ordinary wedding. The article says that it was a four day celebration, uh, including two hundred and fifty guests, thirteen custom outfits for the bride, and a feature sure. in Vogue. Yeah. So you understand that there's a truckload of money behind this particular event, and the photographer is right. a likely a small piece of the pie uh, compared to everything else. You know, the hidden uh, lesson here in this story, Alan, can, can you kind of read between the lines? As, uh, as a wedding photographer, read the lines. as a wedding photographer, this guy was super smart in the clauses he put in his contract that when he was fired, he get, got to keep the money. So, uh, I'm not sure exactly how it happened that he was fired, but it says the father of the bride is out of pocket $76,000 and the photographer didn't have to do the job. So that photographer had a rock solid contract. Wedding photographers review your contracts to cover scenarios like this. Yeah. This guy is actually now my new hero because getting, getting 76, because typically here's, here's actually, this is true. Whenever I do any job ever, 
I actually have a weird psychology to me where I do not like to get paid at all until the job is finished. It's somehow this weird motivating thing for me to get done. And then we'll deal with the money later. But my, my main goal is, is I want to get paid at the end. If I get paid up front, it's like, yeah. I got your money. I can just do a half-assed yeah. job now. Uh, no, 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 it's not that. Sets but in. <laughs> it's 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 also like you know. Well, after you after you go out for a nice uh, dinner at a restaurant, and then like the bill comes, and you're like, "Why would I buy all this food? I'm full. Like, forget it. I'm not paying. I'm full." So you better get better pay uh, ahead of time. So yeah, good for him. Good for him for get, getting. He must have. He must have also known. Uh, that this was a a, a possibility that that there's going to be yeah I guess I, I mean you, you again that rock solid contract put in those contingencies uh, all those extra clauses that you don't think will matter will actually matter the more detailed the contract is uh, usually favors the person that wrote the contract right the the. What I was struck by, but ultimately in this uh, article, was the number of times the word demand was used. And uh, I don't know if, obviously the wedding's in Turkey. There might be a reason for that. Maybe uh-huh. uh, it's just a mistranslation from Turkish. Uh, I haven't dug into the nationality and the languages spoken uh, by the various parties outside of English, but it could be something that's lost in translation. Possibly. Possibly. But uh, yeah, the, the notion that a a a vendor, which is what this photographer technically is, he works yeah. for this individual, would be demanding, uh, doesn't strike, doesn't seem right to me. So I, there is definitely something off here. Well, you know, I've heard stories of Bridezilla uh, and oh, yeah. the mother of Bridezilla yep. uh, from weddings and photographers have to deal with um, unrealistic demands from these people. But from the perspective of Bridezilla, or in this case, possibly father of Bridezilla, I'm not sure uh, how controlling they were over things, but there are people that want to control every single aspect to the placement of the forks to make sure mm-hmm. that there's the proper spacing between that fork and the dessert fork. And if you screw that up, you're fired. Um, I'm not saying this is these people. I'm saying that there's a possibility that somebody was trying to take too much control over a creative process that was not their own. Yeah. Uh, also, the guy, a bit of a sucker, because I would have shot the wedding for 75000 Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got to throw your hat into that ring next time, Alan. Yep, here we are. <laughs> all right. Well, there you go. You can check out all of these stories uh, in, the, uh, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Before we get to the picks of the week, Alan, you mentioned your woodworking channel, uh, and we'll have the link to that too, but you're still doing the uh, Two Hosers photo show, correct? We are still doing it. Um, the reason you haven't been on, by the way, I guess that's a, a subtle dig at your your lack of appearances. <laughs> it's just been a timing thing. The schedule's have been a mess. We do want to have you back on. I, I do think- Hey, my time zone often. is only an hour off from you now. You can't- It's not you can't me. throw that one at me. Don't don't <laughs> pretend it's me who's the, the, the wild card in this. It's- uh, Adam, the uh, yeah, we're still doing it. Have not missed a week now. It's been uh, over twelve years. I've never missed a week of the two hosts for the show. Uh, yeah, well, the uh, some of them aren't great. I'll be honest with you. Skip, <laughs> skip, skip the bad episodes. Quantity the, uh, yeah. over quality. I hear you. 
We're still doing that. Two Hosers Photo Show, twohosers.com, uh, where Adam Schwartz and I, uh, every week we, we talk about some challenge photos. We have a, a, monthly, a monthly challenge that the listeners participate in, post their images on Instagram, and we uh, sometimes critique them, sometimes just say nice things and uh, move on. But what's, what's end up happening, I, which pleases me to no end, is that completely independent of, of Adam and I, there has been a community has popped up. I think, I, I assume they use Instagram. I don't know. I stay out of it. But there is a chat group of people, of, of listeners that I've been made aware of, who talk amongst themselves and basically break down the episodes and whatever whatever they do on their own. Talk about You're how bad we are. <laughs> it's it's not even that part. I don't even care about that. Like, like to me, the whole the whole idea, like what what I love about these sorts of things is 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 the community aspect of it. Um, where I've, I've I've known for a fact that that some of our listeners who only met through listening to the show and met online have met up in real life, have like driven across states to go and photograph things together, and that pleases me to no end. I don't see a dime from any of that, by the way. But it's amazing, though. You, you've you've uh, cultivated a community accidentally. <laughs> so I, I'm 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 really proud. That was never the intent, really. Um, but as it was starting to happen, I was like, "Yeah." And they said, "Like oh, we can include you in the in the chat." And I said, "It's better if you don't. You guys, you, this should be your thing. This isn't. I don't need to get involved in that part. Uh, let me know if there's anything you know that we're really doing poorly. Uh, let, give us some feedback, but." Anyways, have a liaison that um, that communicates just like the the leader of a fan club is the only person with a direct line to the celebrity. That's how you got to yeah. do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll skip that part of part of it. But if you want to if you want to uh, join in on the 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 monthly uh, challenge, check it out. Two Hosers Monthly Challenge. That's the hashtag. You can find everything you or Hey Hosers hashtag Hey Hosers. You can find out. You can see those. What, what is the uh, the monthly challenge uh, for the month of February? It is so now. Here's the new twist: is we don't issue them anymore. The the listeners, a listener will issue the monthly challenge for the next month and select the next challenger. Ah. So so this month, uh, it's been issued by a listener named Frank Pang, and it is shallow depth of field. Okay. And he and he has nominated somebody named CBC Analog. I'm assuming it's a, a Canadian. Uh, CBC Analog. To issue the next challenge for for March, cool. So shallowed up the field, uh, right up my it. alley with with macro work. So maybe I'll uh, I'll I'll throw something into that. That's All cool. right. All right. Uh, I got one thing to plug um, before we get to the picks. And um, I was going to do a uh, macro photography online uh, virtual workshop starting uh, February twenty fifth and going into March uh, with fourteen spots available. And I advertised the few remaining spots. Was it yesterday or the day before? And I ended up with a wait list uh, that would fill up half of another workshop. So I've decided uh, I'm not going to like publicly put the links out there right now. But if you send me an email, uh, I'll give you the, the secret hidden link if you want to join the second one that is scheduled uh, to run uh, between April and May. Uh, so just for the, the fans, any listeners of Photo Geek Weekly that want to jump into a, a four-week macro photography course, fully interactive. We do critiques. I do some demos. We do a lot of theory and practical stuff. Um, have a good conversation around that. Um, then uh, hit me up. I'm not going to post a link anywhere. It's not going to be in the show notes. Just send me an email and you might be able to get that. Um, but uh, picks of the week. So 
Alan, you mentioned you've got the R6, not the R6 yeah. Mark II. You went for the vanilla original. I did. And uh, I, I'm just thinking, you, you talked about it being a game changer and you mentioned some of the things, but let's go over that a little bit more because you were shooting with the 5D Mark III uh, and, and you still have it, I'm assuming. I do. How is it, how is it different? What, what is that transitionary um, experience for you to, to go from flapping mirror camera to mirrorless camera? So first, first off, I, I did buy the original and I bought it probably four weeks before the, the Mark II came out. Uh, knowing full well it was coming. But right. what they did in anticipation of that was drop the price of the original uh, R6 by quite a, quite a lot. Um, a couple and, hundred dollars, I think. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was substantial enough. And I, I, I was guessing that the features that would come with the Mark II would not be the quote-unquote game changers worth the extra money. And um, in my opinion, I was right. But um, I also, the other, the other reason I, couldn't, I could no longer wait after having waited two years to buy it in the first place was I had a job coming up like two weeks out. And even if they had announced a camera, the, the Mark II, it wasn't like they were all going to show up in droves in my local camera shop. So I wouldn't be right. able to get my hands on one. And thus I had a job I had to do. Not only did I need it for that job, I like to have as many reps before the job as possible so that I know how to use my camera. Uh, you don't want to go in learn. without, you know, knowing the button positions or having customized it incorrectly no. and you can't remember exactly what that button did because you've reprogrammed things. You got to get a bit of muscle memory in there, right? A lot. Yeah, exactly. And you don't want the client to be paying for that. It doesn't, not a good look. And so I picked it up, loved it. Um, in terms of what the game changer was, as I said, like, first of all, up until, well, my experience with the R6, up until then, the term autofocus in video was really out of focus. It was terrible. <laughs> it's never been good. I've I've pretty much never used autofocus. Uh, there's a reason that they don't do it in in Hollywood, and I'm I follow, I follow suit. However, the autofocus for video on these cameras is out of this world. How good it is! It's not perfect, but it is so amazing that you can you can mostly you can rely on a version of it. A, a sort of a hybrid, I do like a hybrid kind of version with, with buttons I've pre-programmed to, to pause autofocus and restart and et cetera, et cetera. The image stabilization, particularly for video, it's nice for photos, particularly for, for video is mind blowing to me. Like yeah, it has improved so much. I, the, the only thing about that feature on the, I think it's on all the Canon uh, mirrorless cameras right now is you've got an in-body image stabilizer, at least on mm -hmm. the, the newer ones. I think the R6 has it. The original R yep. didn't. Um, but if you've got that sensor shift uh, ability, you could, just in software, introduce a high-resolution multi-shot mode. Uh, Olympus has it. Sony has it. Panasonic has it. Fuji has it on some of their models. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is great for stills. All you need is an in-body image stabilizer that can shift the sensor around. You got the hardware in there. Canon hasn't put that software in any of their camera bodies yet. And it's annoying me because okay. uh, yeah, everybody else, well, Nikon also doesn't have it. Uh, but both of those, they're lagging behind this feature that I use quite regularly. Uh, so it could just be a firmware update. Again, this is just software as a limiting factor, but right. you're not likely to see it unless it's a new camera that comes out because there's 
It's probably patent encumbered and uh, Canon wouldn't issue a firmware update that would cost them money in terms of introducing uh, new patent licensing. So that makes sense. Yeah, it's not something that is even on my radar, really, uh, for the, the terms of what I shoot and how I shoot. The, the big the big thing for me, the, the massive revolutionary step is with the mirror being gone is a being able to shoot video through the viewfinder. Yep. Whereas before I had, I, I own one of the, uh, I can't even think who makes it now, the uh, Zakudo, the Z finders that you would click on the back of the mount that you would have. And then you'd have to flip it into to live view mode. And then you look through it and it, it was good. I liked it then. But now but you it's want expensive. To shoot. The, I mean, that's not a cheap brand uh, either. No, no, and, no. And so you're spending extra money to add features that are just inherently part of the mirrorless ecosystem. Exactly. Which back when I bought it, mirrorless did not exist. It wasn't a thing that that was you know uh, available. So at the time, it was a great it was a great workaround. I got the the results were outstanding. But the the being able to to go from shooting video with that thing on to taking it off and then flipping over and then shooting stills was a massive pain. It was really cumbersome to do. And and I shoot both. I shoot primarily video to 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 earn my money. I shoot a lot of a lot of stills as well, obviously. The transition between the two is so unbelievably seamless that to me, it's worth the money just for that alone. Wonderful. Well, there you go, the R6. But I, I think that what you're saying about the R6 could apply to the R6 Mark II or anything oh, sure. of, a, uh, of a similar uh, class of camera from Nikon or Sony or anybody in the mirrorless space. I mean, yeah. yes, you are recommending specifically the camera that you have personal uh, you know, experience with. Right. But I... If I may put words in your mouth, the recommendation is for that or cameras that are like it, not specifically that camera at the price point that you bought it was the the only way that you would have gone forward. No, no. So part of the reason the reason that I am I am one hundred percent on on board with Canon is because I own a bunch of their lenses already. That's it. Oh, sure. I, I looked at uh, the Sony and 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 so what what I end up doing is I I still have a. I don't even own an RF lens. I have all the EF lenses, so I bought the I bought the adapter, which works f- unbelievably phenomenal. That adapter, uh, that, and that, I, that I'm envious of. I'm envious of that because I've got a bunch of Canon EF glass, and I've got the EF to L mount adapter, right. and it works, but not phenomenally. Right. Uh, autofocus. Uh, technically, it it autofocuses. Uh, (laughs) They've put a checkbox there that yes, that is, but it's not nearly as good as it should be. Well, that's why when I was looking at cameras, I obviously I looked at the Sony. I I looked at all the different cameras because with that mount, you you can buy the different adapters and you can, you can mount your, your, uh, your L lenses onto your, onto the Sony body. And I, a number of people said, yeah, I, I tried that. It's, it's the experience that you're describing right now. And so I said, you know what? As much as good as like, you can't buy a bad camera right now. You could buy the aforementioned Panasonic, Sony, whatever you want. Uh, I just happen to be. I bought my first 40D in 2007, and that's it. I'm on that path. I didn't sell my lenses. I just kept building. Could have been anything. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for that, Alan. I want to see your pick of the week. I I, I mean, because yours seems a little bit close to home. Well, it is. Uh, and I'm somewhat biased in this pick as we all are with our picks, but, um, 
I've been uh, working with Platypod for a number of years. Great people there making some really fun equipment. I've equipped students with them for workshops. Um, and uh, I noticed that their, their regular bundle that they had wasn't exactly what I was using. And if I would recommend people to buy it uh, as a bundle price, it just wasn't available. So Platypod you know, took my idea of saying, okay, well, let's create this Doncom macro bundle that utilizes all of the hardware that I would typically use in a shoot. Uh, and yes, you can add in some extra clamps or uh, what have you if you need, but the, the core set uh, mm-hmm. when I'm in my studio uh, utilizing their equipment uh, involves their Platypod Extreme, which is a, um, a machined, uh, I don't want to say heavy metal, but it's sturdy and, and quite mm-hmm. thin base. Uh, and it's got uh, uh, swivel out uh, legs that can hold things in place and you can adjust their positioning on that. Really great for in the field shooting when you want to get really low, but it's perfect for tabletop stuff as well. Along with um, some gooseneck arms, which are completely flexible, bendy, and, and they, they hold in place pretty good. So I can position uh, their uh, mini super clamps, which are basically small crab clamps uh, and I, I own, I don't know, 10 or a dozen of these clamps. I use them for almost everything. They're so useful to have. This kit comes with two of them and some loom cubes, uh, which are waterproof, tiny little light sources that you can get right up close to a subject. Uh, and they're still relatively diffuse, uh, more so than a flashlight would be at close range. Uh, so you get some nice light as a result. This whole kit uh, I asked them to put together. They did regularly. It would cost, uh, $433. It's, uh, it's on sale for 299 us, uh, all bundled in together. So, uh, it's, it's not available. Like if you go to the platypod website, you won't see this bundle. Uh, they made it just for me. So they're not like actively promoting it themselves. It was just for my audience or my, uh, students that would be interested in sort of the way that I shoot. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. And that's the only place where you can find it uh, other than email me, uh, email, emailing me and getting that directly from me. But uh, there's, there's some example images. I'll, I'll put those in the show notes too of, of how I utilize the kit. Uh, and uh, it, it actually, if I, I, I use so much gear and I use ultraviolet flashlights. I've got, I have eight ultraviolet flashlights on order for a documentary gig that I might end up with the intensity of the radiation there, uh, like starting a fire. I don't know what's going to happen, but <laughs> uh, a lot of that stuff is all going to be attached to the same set of equipment, uh, albeit with more goosenecks and clamps and what have you, because it's a special uh, special operation there. But the basic kit. It's all you need. Uh, you know, of course, you need your camera and your creativity and whatever your subjects are. But in terms of lighting flexibility, it's, it's, it's on my uh, studio table right now. That's How thing. does this dovetail with your upcoming uh, workshops online? Uh, well, I mean, you, you can get the kit and that's perfectly fine. But I'll be honest, you can get away with simpler things. Uh, you don't yeah. have to spend the two ninety nine. You can spend $7 US on a little third hand tool with alligator clips on a little swivel base. Uh, and that'll get you places. And I've used that for years. And sometimes that little alligator clips are a little bit more fine tuned. And I'll even clamp one inside the bigger clamp. So that kind of like a, a, an alien uh, with the one head coming out of the other, you got the smaller jaw coming out there, mm-hmm. uh, just to clamp onto the tiniest little things like the tip of a dandelion seed. Uh, so I, 
you know, th- there's lots of ways to slice this. You don't have to uh, spend really big dollars towards it. And I can recommend you uh, inexpensive flashlights that work relatively well. But these Loom Cubes are designed for the purpose. And if you want to take a workshop from me, uh, that's the kit that I would recommend as well. Yeah, I like I like having a th- things like this uh, in like a one stop shopping kind of thing, and and, and you just click like the button, you, and then it all arrives. You don't have to go to various shops on Etsy and Amazon and eBay to put the pieces together. So right, yeah. plus plus this is this isn't like I'm selling because I don't know anything about macro photography, and so this, this is not me selling this to you. You've actually used all this stuff. You've thought very uh, a lot of contingencies uh, involved in this. I'm in. If, if I'm taking your course, I'm getting one done. Oh, I appreciate that. Uh, hope to see you there, Alan. But uh, even if even if macro is not your thing, uh, but you occasionally need to have a macro kit, say uh, you want to do uh, a close-up of a ring shot at a wedding, and you'll need some way to stage it and position you know, a flower in a small light and, and do these different things in a small way, This the kit packs up so incredibly small because everything just goes flat. Uh, right. And it'll fit like in the, like, like if you've got like an extra uh, pouch in your camera bag for a laptop, which I never actually carry a laptop in my camera bag, I mm-hmm. would throw all of this gear in that pouch because it's all just flat at the end of the day. Plus, if you're getting 76 grand for a wedding, 300 bucks is not going to put a dent. <laughs> exactly. Drop in the bucket. All Drop right. in the bucket. Well. That brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thank you all for listening. Feedback is also appreciated. If you are listening, since we have restarted, I'm more than happy to entertain any ideas to change the format or to uh, choose specific stories. If anything comes to your attention that you'd like us to talk about on the show, let me know. You can find my email address on the website, photogeekweekly.com. And thank you so much, Alan, for being here for the second episode of the relaunch of this show. My pleasure, and we'll have you on uh, the two hosers as soon as possible. We'll make it happen. And uh, until then, (laughs) well, sure, well, we'll try. We'll we'll see. Uh, But until then, folks, thanks for listening, and it's time to get out and shoot. (laughs) 